Hi, I'm Stu. Good morning. And I get to read the uh, passage this morning, which is Psalm 145, starting at uh, verse 13. <clears throat> the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. All right, thanks, Stu. Good morning. Um, let's pray real quick. Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the truth that uh, Stu just read, that you are near to all who call on you. Pray that as we look at your word and we consider the truth of your closeness this morning, that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> call me old-fashioned, but I think it's a little bit of a rite of passage that if you get married young, that you and your spouse should live in a cheap, small, run-down, kind of danky apartment at least once. You're going to learn some fun tricks for saving money. You're going to figure out how to stay warm. It's a great relationship builder. <laughs> Olivia and I got married young, and in the first three years of our marriage, we lived in three different situations, some good, some not so good. Um, actually, the second apartment that we lived in uh, is after we found out we were pregnant with our son, Isaac, and it was, a, it was a good place. It was a downstairs apartment in someone's home, and it had its own separate entrance and everything, uh, but the family who owned the home lived upstairs, and then we lived downstairs. And it worked out really well for us because we became friends with the family and we hung out with them. And it's not like we were super close, but it was, it was good, you know? And they had four little boys, and we were just pregnant with our son. By the time we moved out, he was only six months old. So we were definitely first-time parents, and uh, they had these four little boys, like I said, very gregarious, very outgoing little boys, and they were that stage where they had no concept of personal space, you know? And so even though the, it did have its own separate entrance, we would see them quite a lot. Um, in fact, uh, one time we had come home from being out, and on the bathroom, uh, there was just this little boy underwear sitting there. And uh, what had happened was the bathroom upstairs was being used, so he just came down and used ours. Um, uh, the point is, though, that we had an ongoing relationship with our landlords, and it was, it was good. Uh, we knew them, they knew us. Now, uh, I want to contrast that with the next house that we lived in. Uh, we had moved to La Grande, Oregon, Eastern Oregon, and um, I, I chose, I found, the cheapest possible home to rent. Bad strategy. <laughs> um, you get what you pay for there. And so uh, it turned out to be a bad move. It saved us money, uh, but it was nasty. It felt like you were just living in a dirty shoe. You know, the, 
the windows rattled. Everything was like this brown color, which it probably wasn't originally meant to be. Um, it was very drafty. Um, and we've been back to visit Legrand a couple of times, and we've driven past the house. It looks exactly the same. And it's kind of like pulling out a picture of an old girlfriend, and you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know? Um, now, uh, in, in that home, uh, we never once even met our landlords. Not even when we were setting up the rental and everything. Um, they had bought the house for their daughter probably 20 or 30 years ago when she was a college student. And it had been at least that long since they put any money into it. Um, and the story was they lived in Hawaii and they rented the house through a property um, rental or management company. And, and it was fine. I mean, they weren't mean. It's just, it just there was no, exi- no relationship between us and the landlords. We would just send a check off every month, and we literally never talked to or heard from anyone about the house. I mean, it, it was totally um, on our own. Now, um, my point is, in one situation, we had regular interaction, we had a relationship with our landlords, and the other, we didn't even know their names. And we've been going through a series called, What is God Like? And so this morning, I want to pose the question this way, uh, which one of my landlords was more like God. Uh, today's sermon is titled, The Close God. And it's really the flip side of what we talked about last week. If you were here, last week we talked about the transcendence or the bigness of God. The fact that he is not like us. He is all-powerful. He's the creator. He lives uh, uh, for eternity. And he is holy. He's unlike us. Uh, this week, though, we're going to look at the fact that he is close to us. He is simultaneously near us. And one verse that I think encapsulates this well is Isaiah 57, 15. It'll be on the screen here. It says, this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. So if we just stop right there. So that's kind of what we talked about last week. This high, holy, lives forever. God, big God but then also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So like I mentioned last week, we considered the first part. And so today we're going to really consider the second part that God lives near us, that he is involved and intimately interacting with what's happening in the world. Now, this idea of God's closeness, his involvement with us, that is called his imminence. And if all we had was God's bigness, his transcendence, he would still be great and powerful, but he would also be removed from us. He wouldn't be involved in our lives, and while we'd still owe our existence to him, we wouldn't really know him. And there's actually a whole um, worldview built around a God just of transcendence. It's called deism. And that's the idea that there is a God, but he's totally uninvolved. So there's no need to pray. There's no need to seek his help. He's not interested in what's going on here. He's like a, he's like a really good clockmaker who kind of built the world, wound it up, and then has set it in motion and has since stepped back and is off doing whatever else. Now, 
that idea of deism was very popular during the Enlightenment, uh, during the founding of our nation. Um, and it's still around today, but it's just nowhere near as common. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because even as believers, as Christians, we can sometimes operate as functional deists. What I mean is we can say we believe that God is there and we act as if, yeah, there's this true God out there somewhere, but we don't really operate as if he's involved in what's happening in my life. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the fact is that without God's imminence, he'd be like the absent and uninvolved landlord. He may still be good, great, and powerful, but again, not involved or interested. And that may be fine for renting property. Maybe some of you even do that. Uh, But the fact is God's not our landlord. He's our father. And he has not left us on our own. So it's not like when we come to pray, there's a sign on his office door that says, uh, be back in 25 million years. He's not absent, he's not removed. And so what I want to do is I want to start out by looking at two stories from Scripture rather than just me telling you about his closeness. I just want to look at two stories that illustrate it. And the first is the story of a lady named Hagar and her son Ishmael. And it's in Genesis 16. The words will be on the screen and and you can turn there now in your Bible if you've got one. Um, but, But as you're doing that, let me give you a bit of context. So the main character in the book of Genesis, or one of the main characters, is a guy named Abram, who will later become Abraham. And God had given Abram and his wife Sarai a promise. And the promise is that they would have many children, lots of descendants. And through those descendants, God was going to bless the world. In fact, God said, I'm going to give you so many, they'll be like the stars in the sky. You're not going to be able to count them. Well, it had been a few years since God had given this promise, and Abram and Sarai um, were starting to kind of doubt that God was going to come through on it. And so they needed to figure out a way to still make descendants, even though uh, they they were older than um, child, they had been past childbearing years, and they had been infertile their whole married life. They tried to have kids, and they couldn't. Now, that's where we pick up the story in verse 1 of Genesis 16. So, it begins... I was telling you to flip there, and I wasn't. Here we go. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Okay, so you see, the promise is in jeopardy. The promise that God had given. But, she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So, she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so after after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, so this is 10 years after that promise had happened, uh, Sarai uh, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. You all know that one, right? (laughs) 
Um, and he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Does that promise sound familiar? The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ba'er Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So this woman, after being despised by her mistress, used and abused by Abram and Sarai, she is apathetically ignored by the man who made her pregnant. She decides to run away. And who does she meet on her journey? the angel of the Lord. That's God himself. And what he does is he comforts her and he makes her a promise, an incredible promise to give her not just the son, but to give her many descendants. And in our world, that can seem kind of weird because we don't think of lots of kids as a blessing usually, but in this culture, this is a huge honor, a huge blessing that she, a slave woman, would be promised what really royalty is usually given. And so after being rejected by Abram and Sarai, Hagar is cared for by God. And what I want to emphasize, though, in the story is her son's name. God tells her to name the son Ishmael. Now, I don't know if you guys do literature. In seventh grade, I had to read the book Moby Dick. It was terrible then. Um, I find it a little more interesting now. But the, the first line in that book, it's a famous line, call me Ishmael. Um, that name, Ishmael, actually has a pretty rich tradition and rich history, and this is actually where it starts, is in this story. And the name is actually interesting because it's just two words smashed together. Um, it's Yishmael in Hebrew. That's, it's not Ishmael, it's Yishmael. And the reason I'm telling you that is because it'd be like us naming our children or one of your kids God heard. What's your name? God heard. Why would you name your kid that? Because God heard me. God wants Hagar never to forget the fact that God is listening to her, that God's paying attention to her, that whenever she would think about her son, which you moms in the room know is pretty much all the time, she would never forget that God had heard of her misery when she'd been forgotten by everybody else. God smashes these words together and he wants to remind Hagar over and over that he's the one that listened to her, that he's the one that took care of her and not just her, but her and her son. And she recognizes that God has done something incredible and so she names God. She will name her son Ishmael, but then she gives God a name, right? The God who sees me. In fact, she sets up a marker and she names the place the well of the living one who sees me. That's what Ba'er Lahai Roi means. The well of the living one. That's the well that she was at by the road of Shur. It's the well of the God who 
sees me. God hears and God sees. Now you got to remember, Hagar is a slave. She's not nobility. It's not like she's got something to offer God. She's not even particularly spiritual from what we can tell in the text. God doesn't take notice of her because of something in Hagar. God takes notice of her because that's who he is. He is the close God. He is the God who hears and the God who sees. And so that's what he does with Hagar. And now that's only the first time he does it with her. Almost the same thing will happen 14 years later in her life. Abram and Sarai will miraculously have a son and will again sinfully mistreat this woman and send her away. And again, she meets the Lord who again hears and sees her and takes care of her son. Now, that's the first story. The second that I want to point out that illustrates God's closeness, his imminence, is found in the next book of the Bible. It's the book of Exodus. So Abram and Sarai had had many ki- or had Isaac, and then he had Jacob, and then they had tons of kids. And the nation of Israel had exploded to several million by this point. And now they were slaves in Egypt. And they had been oppressed by Pharaoh. And so if you're familiar with the biblical story, this is where Moses comes in and God tells Moses to go confront Pharaoh. But before that, we're given just this little snapshot at the end of Exodus chapter 2. And it starts in verse 23. Again, the verses will be on the screen. Um, And it says this, During those many days, the days of the enslavement of Israel, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. This passage is just dripping with God's closeness and imminence with his people. Some of your translations, um, well, where it says God knew there, they'll fill in what God knew. Because literally in Hebrew, it just says God knew. And it's not a bad thing that translations do, but they'll say something like, God took notice of the Israelites, or God knew their suffering, or something along those lines. And that's true, but this is really a poetic way of kind of encapsulating the idea that their pain had become his pain. He had not forgotten about the Israelites. He had not abandoned them. And when it says that he remembered the covenant, it's not that he had forgotten. And oh yeah, their prayers reminded. He called to mind. And so now this story precedes God's action on their behalf. The very next sentence of of the book of Exodus, right after this, begins the story of the burning bush where God calls Moses and tells him, go to Pharaoh, confront him, and emancipate the people of Israel from under Pharaoh's rule. So these are two stories of God's imminence, his closeness with Hagar and with the Israelites. God hears, God sees, God knows. And that's true for us. God hears us. He sees us. He knows us. 
He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. And like we saw last week, he is the transcendent God of the universe. There is no one and nothing on heaven, in heaven or on earth to which you can compare him. And this incredible, transcendent creator God of the cosmos knows you by name and draws close to you. And God's closeness, his presence, his imminence, this is actually one of the main threads that ties the entire biblical story together. The story, or the Bible opens with a picture of total shalom, total wholeness and peace, where Adam and Eve, the first humans to exist, are in this closeness, this um, intimate relationship with God where they walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day and they know him and he knows them. But through their disobedience, they're removed from the garden. And the problem isn't just that they're removed from the garden, it's that they're removed from God's presence. And then the rest of the biblical story can be seen as one of God pursuing his people to bring them back into their presence while they are continually trying to run away from it over and over again. He establishes a covenant with Abraham, promising to bless the world through him, drawing people to himself, establishing the Israelites as his covenant people, that they would be a representative of God, that they would be a light to the nations, that God wouldn't be just the God of the Israelites, but that the nations would come to God through Israel. And so when they're in danger, he leads them out of Egypt. And the book of Exodus is so clear in this. He never abandons them. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He is always leading his people. He is always with his people. And then if you've gone through a Bible reading plan and you read the the layout for the tabernacle or the temple, and it can feel a little hard to get through the details of so many cubits and curtains and all these different colors of dye, all of it is revolving around God dwelling with his people. That's the very last words of the book of Exodus. God dwelt among them. So the tabernacle and later the temple is all about God dwelling with his people, his presence with them, his closeness, again pursuing them. Consistently though, they will continually run away from God, worshiping these false other gods, ignoring him, disobeying his commands, and he is continuing to pursue them. Not because he doesn't take no for an answer, not because he doesn't have any concept of personal space, but because of his great love. He realizes that people in running away from his presence are running to their own destruction. And so he makes promise after promise to come after them. And eventually, in Isaiah chapter 7, he gives this promise. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. We read this at Christmas, don't we? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And she's going to call him Emmanuel. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew picks this prophecy up and he pins it on Jesus. And of course, Jesus' name is Jesus. It's not Emmanuel, but Emmanuel is a title. And Matthew tells us what the word means. It's again, another word that's smashed together and it doesn't mean God hears us. It means God's with us. And so now God's not just hearing, seeing, knowing. God is living with his personal presence no longer in a pillar, no longer in a tabernacle or temple, but in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And as we continue the biblical story, you see Jesus being the presence of God, representing, being the perfect image of the invisible God, as Colossians says. But then he dies. 
And you think, what's going to happen now? Oh, and then he rises again. And for a little while, you're like, all right, sweet, he's here. But then he leaves. Now, Jesus is still alive and he's still present in a sense, but he's no longer physically walking the earth like he was. And so the question is now, where's God's presence? What's he going to do? How's he going to be with his people? We don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple. Jesus is back up in heaven. And so the next thing you get is the story of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles. And now God, through the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of his people. And so the church, not the building, the people of the church are the dwelling place of God. 1 John 4.13 says, We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his Holy Spirit. Two verses later, 1 John 4.15, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. So this is where you and I are now in the story of redemption. If we read the biblical story, we're here. God's presence is no longer somewhere else. If you are a follower of Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, his Holy Spirit is inside of you. There is no more closer. Not, you can't get closer than that. Except for we will. Because the Bible ends with a glorious future, with God's imminence at the center of it. The Bible closes with the image of God's people living in the heavenly city with God himself. If, you have, uh, if you're looking for some verses to memorize, you need to memorize Revelation 21, verses three through four. Here's what it says. Uh, this is one through four. Um, then I saw, this is the apostle John, telling us a vision of something to come. And as we read this, I want you to remember something. This will happen. This is not a fantasy of some lunatic 2,000 years ago. This is reality. This is our future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then I just want to point out in the next chapter, in 22, verses 3 and 4, it says this, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I want you to notice what I've got highlighted in yellow there. God himself will dwell among us. And so I mentioned that Jesus is not physically walking around on earth anymore. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will physically see and be with the God of the universe. We will see his face. 
This is imminence on a whole new level. For those of us who are in Christ, we now see and behold the glory of Jesus by faith, but then it will be by sight. It's what Paul says, now we see dimly as if it's like a reflection in a foggy mirror, but then we're gonna see face to face. And as believers, this is what we long for. This is, in every sense of the word, our destiny. This is what we were created for. This is where our lives are heading. The entire biblical story revolves around God's imminence. That when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, that was not the end. His closeness and his presence with his people is routinely challenged and confronted by the sins of humanity, by our sins, by my sins. And yet, by his grace, God continues to pursue us and to bring us near to himself in Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. As, as I was preparing this sermon, I was sharing it with Olivia, and uh, she shared this quote with me from a book. It's called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. I just want to share the quote with you. It's pretty long, so I'll put it on the screen. It says this, The gospel is called the gospel of God, not simply because it is from God, not merely because it is accomplished through God, but also because ultimately it leads me to God, who is himself its greatest prize. Indeed, what makes the gospel such great news is God, who brings me to himself and then gives himself so freely to me through Jesus Christ. The essence of eternal life is not found in having my sins forgiven and possessing a mansion in heaven or in having streets of gold on which to walk forever. Rather, the essence of eternal life is intimately knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. God is an imminent God. He is a close God. He knows us and he draws us near to himself. This is the heart, this is at the heart of the biblical story, and it's the heart of the gospel itself. This has a lot of implications for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, but I want to point out just two. Number one, first, God's imminence means that God is close. Okay, I realize I've been saying that for the last 30 minutes, okay? So it might sound a little repetitive, but I want to take this time for you to take this truth and take it personally. If you are a Christian, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, then God is close to you. Just knowing how life is and knowing the size uh, or the amount of people in this room, I'm certain that there are some of you struggling to believe that God is close to you, that God is listening to you. You may be feeling tempted to believe that God has abandoned you, that he does have a be back in 25 million years sign on his door, that he's looking the other way, that for some reason or other, you are on your own. That is not true. We have explicit promises in Hebrews 13.5. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Jesus says in Matthew 28, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, through thick and thin. And so, 
you can say with confidence the same thing that David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God's imminence means that he is with you right now. You are not alone. You may feel far from God today for some reason or other, but as Paul says, he's not far from any one of us. I do want to make a note that there is a unique presence of God among the gathered church, that when we as believers come together in the name of Jesus to worship, there is a unique presence that's here. And so I'm glad you're here this morning because you're not just here to sing some songs and listen to a motivational speech. We, we, we pray ahead of time. From 8.30 to 9, we have a prayer time every morning. And one of the things we pray today is that people, that you and I, that we would have a genuine encounter with God himself this morning. And so the church is one of the ways that God makes himself close to us. That's why we do small groups. That's why we're announcing them over and over. And so if you're not in one, I really encourage you to get connected to a small group. It's not just uh, something so you can all have a bunch of friends. That's part of it. But another part is that God's presence is in some ways through his people. Now, he is with you personally. Please hear me say that. That is true. But you also need the church. The overall point is this. God is close. Do not believe the lie that you're alone. The second thing that God's imminence means is that we need to depend on him. Don't be a functional deist. Don't just believe that God is out there somewhere, that yeah, he created everything, and, and yeah, the Bible's true, but not actually turn to him. Don't, so many of us, um, including some of us in this room, and I, I know I'm tempted with this and I struggle with this too, that we believe in God, but we go through life without really trusting him, without really praying as if it's true that we need everything from him, without really acting like we need him to be the one to provide our daily bread. We live in a society and we live in a neighborhood that is so blessed that sometimes we can forget how desperately needy we really are. Psalm 68, 19 says, Praise be to the Lord who daily bears our burdens. Daily bears our burdens. Every day the sun rises, even if it's behind the clouds, every day the sun rises, he bears your burdens. His mercies are new every morning. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Several years ago, I went on a backpacking trip that turned out to be one of the worst ones of my life. Um, it was in the very northeastern tip of Oregon, outside of a small little town called Troy, or excuse for a town. Um, and uh, it was oppressively hot, Every day, it was much harder than I expected. I was dusty. There were rattlesnakes. We saw several rattlesnakes every day. Just, you know, got to be really careful. And, and we're a long ways from society. A two-hour drive on, you know, those kind of roads where you're just like, oh, Lord, I pray my car can make it through this. Um, but what made it bad was that on the last night, I got food poisoning. I don't know if any of you have had food poisoning. 
It's not fun when you're in your own house, okay? It's much less fun when you're in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I'll spare you the details because you don't want them. But I was several pounds lighter the next morning. <laughs> and um, I, I couldn't eat. I was pale. I was weak. I didn't get any sleep. And I could barely stand up. There was no way I was going to be able to hike the next seven miles out with 40 pounds on my back. Um, and it was one of those mornings where it's like 7 a.m. and 85 degrees, and you're just like, this is, this is trouble. My brothers were with me, and they that morning acted like God to me uh, because they went through my backpack and distributed among themselves what they were going to carry, and my job was just to not die. Um, <laughs> I, I just carried an empty backpack dragging my feet for seven miles, and... Um, the point is this, though. Um, when, when we fail to depend on God, it's as if you're taking up that 40-pound bag and saying, no, I got this. I got this. You don't. You don't. God offers to take out of your bag, put it in his, and carry your load along with like 8 billion other people's, and your job is just to walk with him. And he carries the weight. He carries the burden. Day in, day out, every day. And how many of us are just carrying an unnecessary load? Because you just haven't dropped it at the foot of the cross. You haven't taken it out of your bag and given it to Jesus. James 4.8 promises that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. This does not mean it's going to be easy that when you hand something over to him, it doesn't mean that it's not gonna ha- you're not going to have any issues. What it means is that you'll make it. So, we've seen what imminence is. It's the fact that God is close to us, that he is involved in our lives, that he hears us and sees us. We saw it displayed in the life of Hagar and in the, Egypt- in the uh, Israelites. We saw that his closeness is a theme throughout the entire biblical story and that it's at the heart of the gospel itself, and that you and I have a glorious future ahead. We saw two things that means is that he's close to us right now and that we need to depend on him. And so I want to close uh, with this quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses is telling the Israelites um, about God, and he says this, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to him. I've told you about rhetorical questions before, right? They're not really asking a question. The answer is there is no other God like this. There is no other God who is both transcendent and imminent. There's no other God who is the creator of the universe and so unlike you that when you see him, you bow down and you cry out, holy, 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 is Lord God Almighty, and that you push away and say, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And yet at the same time, that God comes near to you and draws you close to him and hears your prayers and takes care of you and takes out of your backpack and puts it in his. There's no other religion on earth. There's no other God like this God. We need his transcendence and we need his imminence. And so if there's anyone in this room you're thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about Christianity. 
you're considering it, I would just implore you, draw near to the only God who promises to draw near to you. If he's, if he's only transcendent and not imminent, then what you have is an absent, removed landlord. What you have is a God who doesn't really know you. If all he is is imminent but not transcendent, you have little more than a security blanket that might help you emotionally but doesn't have the power to actually help. Our God is the only God like this. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have the privilege right now of praying to you and that we recognize that there are other churches all around the world praying right now and you are big enough and transcendent enough to hear each one of those prayers. And you are imminent that you care about each one of them and that you will respond and that you are listening. And God, we love you and we thank you that you have drawn us close to yourself in the person of Jesus. I want to pray for anyone who is feeling far from you this morning. God, I pray that they would draw near to you and that you draw near to them. In Jesus' name, amen.